Hey, and welcome to episode number 36 of The Brave Widow Show. In today's episode, I get to speak with Dave Everett. Dave was married to his wife for 29 years before she passed just over a month ago, and they were partnered together for 32 years. Dave's story is unique in that when him and his wife got married, he knew that she had a type of condition that most kids don't survive. Most people don't make it to adulthood. Most people don't make it out of those kid or teenage years. So him and his wife knew early on that there was a high risk that she would die early. So they got to talk about things like life after she might pass and DNRs and what the future really could look like and have a special appreciation for the time that they had together. Dave has done a lot of work online to give back to others who are grieving, and I would love for him to share with you today some of the things that he's thought about, some of the things that he's learned, and what he's doing to share his journey with others. So let's dive in. Welcome to the Brave Widow Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Jones. We help young widows heal their heart, find hope, and dream again for the future. Welcome to another episode of the Brave Widow Show. Today, I'm here with Dave, who's a recent widower and has some things that he'd like to share with the audience. I'm really excited about some of the things that he has to share. And so, Dave, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks, Emily. So how would you like to get started? Yeah, I think it would help if you would share with the audience. I know I was a little surprised when you shared how recently you lost your wife, that you're already wanting to give back and help other people. So maybe just give the audience a bit of your background and a part of your story, and then we can dive into what you'd like to share today. Okay. My wife of 29 years, partner of 32, passed about a little over a month ago. I think it's 34 days for me who's counting. And what had happened is she had a heart condition that basically 99% of kids die from. In fact, she wasn't expected to make five weeks. And they later developed surgeries for it. But at her, when she had it, they didn't have that. So they were amazed that she made it to teenhood. And then she had her first surgery. Of adults with this disease, the mean age is about 35. And she made it to 55 and four days. When we first got married, we one of the first things that happened was I knew of her heart condition. I knew that was a risk, but we got married in August. And by November, she was having a lot of angina and went in and had an angiogram where they checked it out. And they decided that they needed to do a heart surgery right away. The bypass they had done when she was a teenager had aneurysed and it was about to go at any time. So one of the first things we dealt with as newlyweds was open heart surgery. And I actually am really grateful for it because A, I was able to be there for my partner from day one. And she knew I was there for her and stuff like that. And we both knew the fragility of life. So it let us have a very mature marriage early, early on. We had a, a great marriage. We were open about everything. And we got to talk about what happens if she dies? What happened if I die? Would we move on? Th things like that. We talked about DNRs. We had a, a trust set up and things like that. So we were kind of always prepared 
we weren't, you weren't necessarily expecting it. She ran a half marathon in January and had run multiples and was healthy and as vivacious as they come. And then just had a heart event February. And that's always, I swim in the mornings and she was running and you get the call. And when you have a partner that's a heart patient, you're always, it's always in the back of your head and you get this call while I'm in the pool. And I'm like, don't let this be it. And it was it, you know, where they said, yeah, she went down and we're doing CPR. So I went out, drove immediately and we dealt, dealt with that. She'd had CPR for 58 minutes. And then they told me that she was probably, she, they asked, they came, brought me in to say goodbye and she got sinus rhythm right then. And they're like, oh, she lived. She was recovering from that and then had a stroke and then was recovering from that. And we were getting into her into rehab and starting to get her life, her, what we could get of her life back. And then she got sepsis and we had to let her go on March 22nd. And this is April 27th. So. Well, I'm uh, so sorry for that. And I can't imagine exactly your situation, but I would guess there has to be this sense of like gratitude and appreciation, but also hard to wrap your mind around. Like, is this really happening? Is this really it? Like the final instance and now she's gone. Do you find yourself struggling with that at all? I mean, very little. In February, when I got the call, I had like always known that I might get the call and I was like losing it, bawling on the drive over there. But I mean, it was sort of acceptance. This could be it. Don't let this be it. The bargaining, the everything. And then when you go into the ICU or first you're in the ER, but they're telling you that she's gone. And then afterwards, the hospital that we went to didn't have the most patient-friendly demeanor. They're like, okay, she... Yeah, she lived, but with, under CPR that long, she might be a vegetable. So we're putting her in a coma and we'll have to see in three days. So you have three days of waiting while they've got her in like hypothermia and unconscious where I called it Schrodinger's wife. You don't know if she's alive or dead. Is there anything in there or not? So that three days of trauma of not knowing kind of prepared you for what happened a month later and that it was pre-grieved. I mean, they say don't pre-grieve, but when you don't know, I mean, you can't do anything but grieve during that time and worry, stuff like that. So by the time March came with knowing for 32 years and having dealt with other things, and on top of it, some of the complications were kind of risky. She was, you know, was blind. We weren't sure if that was going to come back. She had a she was having neuropathy, which is body pain. And we weren't sure if that was caused by the anoxic brain damage or if it was just caused by her being sedentary for a month. One of them is healable and one of them is kind of can last forever. So, and um, there was a lot of concern and worry there about what kind of quality of life we could get. So by the time she, when she went into septic shock and she passed, by then I had kind of had like a month to accept. So there wasn't like that denial at all at the time, even though there had been during that previous time and a lot of bargaining, there's always bargaining. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've noticed for me, one thing that feels so tricky is you get like this acceptance of, okay, like it or not, my spouse isn't here anymore. And then a couple of weeks later, I might be thinking, is this really happening? Is this real? Is this really what my life's going to look like? 
And for some people, it just really feels like you do this forwards and backwards, like moving forward in your healing and grief journey. But it sounds like, I mean, even what you mentioned, just being newlyweds, that was probably always somewhat in the back of your mind that this is a real risk. I could lose her and she's already past her life expectancy for what she has had. But I don't want to take away from the fact that when you lose your spouse, it still hurts and it's still hard. And it's um, always a surprise at the end. And you're always, you know, that. And there is, there's step backs. I mean, especially for the first couple weeks, every morning you get up and then your first thought is, I don't have her here. She's not going to be here today. And that stuff is tough, but I was forcing myself to deal with a lot of it and go into the grief instead of going away from it. And so like I was calling everybody personally, retelling the story. I don't care. I'm bawling and, but here's what's going on and giving them whatever details they wanted. And it's in some ways it's sort of self-torture, but in the other way, it's like forcing my brain to just like accept you've said it a hundred times now, you know, it's real. That's true. And I think it did help me too. The more I talk about it, the more I tell the story, it gets a little easier to tell it and helps normalize the fact that they're gone. So maybe tell us, I know you mentioned that you have a blog and you shared with me one of the things that you'd posted on there, which I thought was really well thought out, but what inspired you to create this blog and what is it about? And what are, what are some of the things that are really top of mind for you with this topic? Well, I used to write about about everything. I used to be a tech writer and s- stuff like that. But okay, okay, what happened is early 90s, I got an anxiety disorder. I got a virus. And surprisingly, when you get sick from viruses, for some people, it messes with your gut biome and you can actually get anxiety disorders or phobias after that. People don't realize there's a real biomechanical link for some of them. But I had to do a lot of meditation and other things. I was a martial arts instructor and do a lot to kind of cope with an anxiety disorder. And back then, one of the things I figured out is if I journaled things, I could just get it out. I could organize my thoughts, argue both sides of something and let it go because it was on paper somewhere. It was there. Didn't I could publish some things. I didn't publish other things. So I had had this, my own little page that I had done, which just has all sorts of rambly things about anything. Well, when Melissa went went down, I have to tell all these people and keep them connected on what's going on day to day. And so I immediately made a blog about, or started journaling about her heart attack and saying, here's what's happening with the heart attack. Here's where she is. We're taking photos and I'm putting it in it and keeping it as a journal. So when she gets better, she gets to see the journey, what everybody else did. Because like I mentioned, she was in a coma for three days. And then when she came out, she had no short-term memory and there's there's a process there. And then she had a stroke. And so there was like going to be gaps for her. So being able to fill in what she had seen, what people had done and things like that just seemed like a natural way for me to cope with what I was going through and be able to give her a gift when she got out. So that's how I started that. And then all of a sudden, day 33 of that, she went from getting better. We celebrated her birthday a few days before, and there's people there, and she's smiling and stuff like that and doing well, to went into septic shock and died. And I have to put that out there. And then I'm like, well, 
I'm not coping. I'm not going to be able to cope with this well unless I get my stuff out. So I started like writing, journaling everything that was happening to me during the grief journey. And I can send you a link on that. And and it just kind of goes through what I did from day to day or what I thought from day to day. And that kind of also helped me cope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any, anything with sort of a creative or artistic flair really taps into that side of our brain that's tied to emotion and helps us to cross how we're feeling and our thoughts. And like you said, just getting it all out there is helpful and you may get a lot of traction on there or not, but I think at some point in the future, especially you're really going to help other people and help them validate how they're feeling or thinking or seeing that their journey is similar to yours. So I think that's just a really great way of you trying to process what you're going through, update people on what's happening and how you're thinking about it, but then also giving back because that's going to help other people in the future as they read that and being able to connect with it. And I've got the link here. So for our listeners, I'll make sure we put that in the show notes so that you have access to it. But I think this was a really great idea that you had, and I'm glad you found that way of just channeling and being able to organize your thoughts even before this happened with being able to process that sort of thing. So that's awesome. Yeah. The journaling helped me through an anxiety disorder. So it was naturally able to help me through my, my wife, my wife's journey and my journey afterward. Yes. So one of the article or one of the articles that you had sent me just talks about how grief isn't just in our heads and what people experience when they go through grief and part of what that journey looked like for you. Do you want to walk through some of those topics and share just what you've learned and what you've experienced with others? Yeah. One of the things was a lot of people, some of my friends were talking and I've been on some of the grief forums and I was reading everything. I'm I'm kind of a data nerd. So I'm reading all the books and I'm going to all the grief forums. And I went to a few different meetings and things just to try to absorb what the experience is and understand everything. But a lot of people from the outside, the non-grievers, they don't, they think it's a purely emotional thing. And it's certainly emotions are a part of it. What they don't seem to realize, and what I had noticed right off is this is like an anxiety disorder, very much so. You're in such pain and your security is stolen from you. You know, the person that you vent to every night, the person that provides you security, that helps you with your family, whatever it is, this is like half of your security being ripped away. And so it's only natural that the brain starts dumping cortisol, the stress hormone, in your, in your brain, which is basically a bit broken fight or flight mechanism, which is exactly what a phobia and anxiety is. A phobia and anxiety is you see something and your, your brain starts kicking this fight or flight mechanism. You get panicky and whatever. Well, it's sort of the same thing with grief. I come home or I see something and my wife's not there. She's never going to be there again. What is my life going to be like? Am I ever going to be able to love again or be loved? You start going in these same exact cascading negative circles that you go through with panic attacks. Am I losing my mind? All this stuff. And so it's like, no, this is actually a biochemical thing that's going on. Cortisol is being dumped in your system. You're reacting to it. You're reacting to it with negative thoughts, which then dumps more cortisol. And you get in this negative biofeedback and emotional loop. And so all the things that I had dealt with for an anxiety disorder are like, well, this is the same. How do you combat anxiety disorders? Well, you need dopamine. You need the good hormones or things to kind of counteract that. So I 
didn't change my routine. I went and worked out, kept working out daily. It's like, I need that release. Started doing a lot more time in a jacuzzi or in a shower, meditating, just anything you can do to start helping your chemical relaxation, as well as physical relaxation, can kind of combat the hormones that are making you more negative than you already are. I mean, you already have legitimate reasons for that negativity, but your brain is also magnifying it. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it definitely does. And I'd actually read a book and shared it on the show before called The Grieving Brain. And it talks a lot about that, like you said, where grief is processed at like a trauma. So that's why a lot of times they'll say you have like this grief fog or brain fog that happens in grief because your brain is almost trying to protect itself from feeling everything all at once and being in this constant heightened state of fight or flight and how you respond to those things. And uh, I also think about too, what you said and, and missing that person who's your security. Like I noticed I would second guess so many decisions I never second guessed before, or I would be really conservative with things. I needed more money in the bank in my savings. I needed better security system. Like I just thought I needed all this additional protection because I felt like what I was secure and what I knew all of a sudden was gone. And I didn't have that person to say, well, do you think this is a good idea? Should we spend money on this? Should we put in these alarm systems or whatever? And that can leave you just feeling very vulnerable. So I like the correlation that you made with anxiety and some of the same things that you have to process when you're trying to handle some of that. Well, just think of things like you know, a lot of people want to sleep. They want to stay in their house. It's safety. It's don't take risks. It's your brain telling you like, be as safe as you can because the world became much more dangerous without your partner. And that's just kind of how your your brain and body see it. And it's true. You're alone. You don't have backup. And so, yeah. So Yeah, definitely. And for those that still have kids at home or pets or dependents, whether it's family or friends, maybe even parents are taking care of people that depend on you. It's almost like you have this additional conservative view of, well, now there's no backup plan if something happens to me, like I'm it. I'm the last line of defense for these people in some cases, or they're going to have to experience big life changes if I wasn't able to help take care of them anymore. And that can make you also really second guess a lot of decisions. Yeah. And everybody's grief experience is different, obviously, but you do kind of like wonder, like, does this help or hurt? And I, you wonder with kids is an example. It's like, oh, the poor survivor has more responsibilities and that's got to even be more traumatizing there. But on the other hand, they immediately have a purpose to keep going. And so you're like, it's, a, it makes the experience different because it's like, I've got to keep going for my kids. I've got these, I've still got a purpose in life. It's just, I lost a big piece of it. So you always kind of analyze. It's like, well, it, it does both. It hurts and it helps, I'm sure. And it's up to, up to individuals. So the things that I would have been telling people to do to try to help themselves when they're dealing with grief is A, if you can, therapy or journal. For me, journaling is therapy. It's just a lot of unpaid therapist or me, yeah. but it's just me getting it out. And if you're, if it's going to have any value, you have to be completely honest and just admit 
I don't know these things or this is what I'm feeling. But at least if I get it out on paper or get it to, if you got it to a therapist, that would help. The other things was all those things that they give you the dopamine hits, whatever they are. I think that's part of what widow's fire is that it's the brain naturally saying, I need security. I, A, I miss the touch. I miss all that stuff. But B, I need this security. I need the help. And um, you get the good hormones uh, when you have touch. And so that kind of helps that aspect of it. So you're like, yeah, okay. I mean, I kind of get it. I have not used that therapy myself, but but you kind of understand where that kind of that kind of goes. And then another one that I kind of suggest is people when they set goals tend to solve problems. They tend to set these objective goals. Like I want to lose 30 pounds. And what it is when you're on that journey, you're like, I'm failing. And then they get there and then they're like, okay, they succeed for a day. And then they set the next goal so they can be failing again. And, and it's like a very hard thing to set ob objective goals. But if you set process goals or s simple things, they're much easier to maintain. I'm going to eat a little better today. I'm going to take this thing out. It's like, oh, I can do that. And then you succeeded for the day. It doesn't really, you'll get to your objective eventually, but you just work on those. And I was trying to tell people the same thing. It's like, don't say, I've got to clean the house. Say, I'm just going to clean something. I'm going to do, I'm going to make a list today of things that I need to do. And then tomorrow it's like, I'm just going to do one thing on the list, something really small. And it's like, okay. And then once you do that, you get a dopamine hit or a little boost that it's like, oh, I solved a problem. I did something. I am productive. I'm not just completely consumed by grief. I have my grief moments and I have my productivity moments. And so they do one successful thing and then they can sometimes go on and do another. But if they don't, they still left that day with a success and focus on this, the baby steps anyways. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's one thing I tell people often with setting goals or trying to think about the future, because one, you're operating at a lesser capacity than what you're accustomed to because you are grieving and things, life is just overwhelming. And you've probably taken on all these new tasks and responsibilities that you haven't done for a long time, or maybe you never knew how to do like talking to a group today about learning how to mow with a zero turn. Like I've never done that before. So it's something that just feels overwhelming to learn. But to your point, it's a great idea to have lesser expectations of yourself and to give yourself grace and then to set goals that you can accomplish. And it doesn't have to be the same number of goals that you would normally have, or like they teach us in the business world to have goals that are measurable and actionable and hold yourself accountable and make sure that you meet these things that they can be a little more broad and vague, especially in the beginning when you're looking at a list that's growing every day instead of decreasing. Just taking those baby steps is so important and does help you feel like you're getting some of those wins in. Well, and you mentioned grievers being hard on themselves. And I think that's actually like a symptom of your brain getting addicted to the pain, if you know what I mean. It's sort of building new neural pathways and the new neural pathway is pain. And you almost look it's almost like your brain starts looking for ways to magnify it. And I don't, I don't know what causes that, but it's like you start building these standards that are perfection so that you can fail and then beat up on yourself. And I see that in a lot of people that are grieving. What I tell them is like, one, one was a nurse that was saying like, I should have known that this was more serious and I didn't know this was for someone else. And I'm like, if he was here, do you think he would be like, oh, you blew it? Or do you think he would be, thank you for being there for me? 
judge yourself by how your spouse would, assuming you have a good relationship. <laughs> but it's like, it's like there are things that I could have done or would have done or should have done had I known like X and Y, but I didn't know X and Y at the time. And my wife would have, wouldn't have attacked me for that. She would have thanked me for have been there and fought so hard for her. So if I judge myself by my own standards, I could beat myself up. But if I say, how would she judge me? I can give myself a lot more grace. And you can get a lot of people to do it by saying like, here's how I screwed up. What do you think of that? And they'll say, but you did the best you could. And it's like, great. Why won't you judge yourself by that standard? It's like, now give yourself that grace because we need it. (laughs) Yes, we do. And to your point, I think a lot of people look back on their relationships and feel guilty or like you said, try to place blame with, oh, I should have made this phone call. I should talk to this doctor. I should have, I could have done this or that. And for me, it was more about faith and acknowledging that, well, For me, I think God's bigger than any one phone call I could have made. So I don't think that was like the make or break thing. And a lot of what I've learned through the process is we tend to feel guilty, but it's not because we wanted to harm our person. It's because we wish something was better or different. And so once you start identifying like what were the things I wish were better or different, and then like you said, reframing it and thinking about it from the opposite point of view, you really can start to have less pressure and stress on yourself and how you think retrospectively about how all of those things were handled. But it is something, I mean, I even think about people struggling to accept help and definitely not asking for help. But yet if they had a friend or family member that they know was hurting and needed help, they would be the first person to say, well, let me know what you need help with and I'll jump in there and help you. But when it's us in that position, it's really hard to do that. Yeah. And what that actually leads into something, which is a lot of my friends were asking, what can I do to reduce my grief or to prepare for like spouse and losing a spouse and things like that? And of course, there are, you can never fully prepare. But I was pointing out to things like what everybody should do. Talk to them about what they want as far as a funeral. How do they want their arrangements done? Do they want to be cremated or not? My wife and I had these conversations and that just took a lot of burden off me because it's like, no, I know I've got ideas of what she would want. And it was a lot easier to make decisions because we had that in place. We had DNRs in place. And one of the things was near the end, she was like, if I can't have my life back, baby, let me go. So having that clarity, let me be her advocate on it, even though those decisions were harder. And another thing, trade responsibilities occasionally. A lot of people, we divide and conquer. We're partners. She did property management. We have some rentals. And I did other things, some aspects of finance. But when when she went, I've now got to learn a whole new system and property management and all this stuff. And it's like, okay. And I kind of talked to her a few times over the years because she'd say, she'd tell me, if I ever die, you're screwed. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, great. Show me, uh, show me what your system is. Oh no, it's not ready for that. She was like, she didn't want input, but, but yeah, if you can trade responsibilities every night, the non-cooker cooks one night a week or something. One of the big advantages was my wife was a flight attendant. And so there were plenty of times that she's gone and I had to learn to clean the house, do the, do the basics. And so at first it's like, she's gone. It's like, okay, this is a really big trip. It's like, you know, but I can at least cope and handle a lot of the stuff because I've handled it before. 
the regrets thing. A lot of people that have kind of these a little more conflicting marriages, and we have various phases where we were in there and whatever, but it, the more contentious stuff, or if they're kind of in a breakup or separation when it happens, it seems to cause a lot more trauma because they have those mixed emotions of everything. And if you can do anything to get closure and get things like admit your mistakes and basically, and it, the other person asks, like, I screwed this up. It's like, it's okay. We're still together. We got through it. I forgive you everything or we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to have a healthy relationship, but being able to get to that place of no regrets and as much closure as you can have in a relationship at any time, except for the last thing, you know, there's always going to be that last thing that you did wrong, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I relate so much on what you shared and preparing for funeral. Um, Nathan and I did actually talk about it a lot. And the weird thing that tripped me up that I had a hard time was whether or not to bury him with the wedding ring. Because uh, we both kind of upgraded, I guess, there towards our 20 year. And he was so adamant about being married to me, even in heaven. He's like, I don't care. We're always going to be together. And he was so proud of that. But we never talked about what to do with the wedding rings after we died. So even though I felt very confident on 99% of all decisions, for some reason, it was that one weird thing that I just kept going back and forth on on what I wanted to do. So totally agree that talking those things out with your spouse is really helpful, even if it feels morbid or awkward, it will help make decisions down the road. And a lot of funeral homes will give you for free, like a really nice toolkit that you can fill out. You can pick out your songs. You can pick out how you want the order of service to be like all of that stuff can be planned out in advance. And then you just hand that back over whenever, you know, it's time to go through with that. But I think as humans, we just, we tend, the way I've heard it said is we tend to live with our back towards death until we can't help but face it anymore. And so that's really challenging, but I know we're, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I think society, one of the things is our society has been able to make things so much safer than it had ever been in history that we don't have to face death. We don't have 50, 60% children dying before they get to the age of 18 and stuff like that. And so we don't see death and we can kind of put it behind us and ignore it for so much. And what it's actually done is it sort of isolated the grievers from everyone else because not as many people have had to go through grief. And I think that's good for society. I'm glad for all the people that haven't had to do it. But as one of the one of the TED Talks had said, is 100% of the people you know are going to die. And 50% of good relationships are going to have, have to, one person is going to have to deal with this. So it's like sad that society's become less, less able to handle grief. But on the other hand, it's great that so many more people are clueless. Yeah, we're definitely uneducated about how to process and handle loss and grief. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so hard because you feel crazy. You feel like you're the only one who's going through that because we just don't really talk about it until you get to that point. But I know that we're coming up on time. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience or any other thoughts that come to mind for you? No, not that I can think of. I I try to rem- use grief when people are talking about it to get people to do some of the things that I mentioned. They'll ask me questions about it and I'll be like, you know, you know what you can do? Go talk to your spouse about it and get this stuff closed because 
if something happens, God forbid, at least you're a little more prepared and things like that to try to turn it and turn a negative into a positive as much as you can. But it's like when you're the griever, there's not much bright side at the moment. There's not. And I think for me, one of the thoughts I had even very early on was the pain and the loneliness and just the overwhelming sadness was so raw in the beginning that I felt like I had to be able to help at least one other person or it was almost a waste. Like, how can people go through this and not try to create something good out of something bad that happened? So yeah, I totally relate with that. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I really enjoyed and appreciated our conversation. And I know the listeners will as well. Okay. Thank you very much. You have a good one. All right. You too. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the Brave Widow podcast. I would love to help you take your next step, whether that's healing your heart, finding hope, or achieving your dreams for the future. Do you need a safe space to connect with other like-minded widows? Do you wish you had how-tos for getting through the next steps in your journey, organizing your life, or moving through grief? What about live calls where you get answers to your burning questions? The Brave Widow membership community is just what you need. Inside, you'll find courses to help guide you, a community of other widows to connect with, live coaching and Q&A calls, and small group coaching where you can work on what matters most to you. Learn how to heal your heart, find hope, reclaim joy, and dream again for the future. It is possible. Head on over to bravewidow.com to learn more.